thing that was good about it. There is just something about the hymns and communicating truth that is just wow. I would invite you as we begin today to open to Acts chapter 21. We're going to have a little bit longer reading of the text today than normal. We're going from uh, all the way through Acts 21 and, and also chapter 22. Uh, it's a bigger chunk than we normally take on. and uh, I'd almost like to keep going through chapter 23, but as we look at this, it holds together uh, as one, one passage, one uh, one. Uh, unit of thought as we're, we're doing this, a, a pericope, if you will. I just wanted to say pericope really badly. So in Acts chapter 21, sorry about that, I got a little loud in the mic. We are encountering Paul. Luke writes, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we cut to sea, I'm sorry, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing it to the south, we sailed on to Syria. We landed, <coughs> excuse me, we landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, <clears throat> we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our, vo our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasin, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed 
and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there's no truth in, the, in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he, would, what he had done. Some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another. Since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Get rid of him! As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and sisters, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city. I, under, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. 
About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal? for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word today, we recognize that this is no ordinary book. Father, we know that we cannot understand what you have revealed to us apart from your Holy Spirit making it clear. So we pray now, Father, that you would open our minds, open our hearts, that we would engage both our intellect and faith to receive what you have for us today. Lord, 
we are not good enough, strong enough, smart enough on our own to be able to enter into your presence. And so even in worship, Lord, we, we rely on your mercy. We don't want to come on our terms, but on yours. Lord, as we encounter your word today, change us from the inside out. Transform us by the renewing of our mind that those who do not know Jesus Christ today would engage with him in a real way, that they might, that they might enter into a saving relationship with your son. And for those of us who do, that our hardness might be broken up, that you might plow up our fallow ground so that you can do the work in us that you have in mind. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, that was a, a big passage. As we get to this point in the story, uh, the, the story begins to accelerate. We're, we're working toward the big climax here, and, and Acts, as a book, surprisingly maybe, ends sort of unresolved. We'll see that over the next several chapters as Paul is going about doing what God has called him to do. And at the end of the book, we're sort of left with a cliffhanger. My wife and I have been uh, watching a, a, a show recently. Some of you might be familiar with it called Arrow. I, I like superhero shows. Anyway, so we're watching the show and I get really annoyed when it's bedtime and I'm finishing and they have a stinking cliffhanger. I want to know more. I got to I got to know more. The book of Acts leaves us that way. There are 28 chapters in Acts, and as we'll see later, we are chapter 29. Here as we look at what Paul is going through, he's returning. He's finished his third missionary journey and he's wrapped this up and he's headed back to Jerusalem. He wants to get back there for the festival. He's determined to go to Jerusalem, knowing full well that suffering awaits. How do I know that? Well, look back at chapter 20. <clears throat> Excuse me. As, uh, as we see him parting from, he's in Miletus and he's met with the Ephesian elders. He doesn't want to get hung up there because you know, he wants to get to Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says, Now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So the, the Lord has not made clear to him yet the details of what's going on. But notice what the Lord does make clear to him. Verse 23, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So Paul is determined to go knowing what, what is going to happen. He doesn't know the details, but he knows that suffering and hardship is what's in store for him. And he goes... And when he gets there, he does all that he can to foster peace, and yet he's opposed and falsely arrested anyway. He avails himself of his rights as a Roman citizen, and he's 
actually protected. We often see the Romans as bad guys when we see these things portrayed in, in movies. He's actually protected by the Romans from the mob justice that the Jews have waiting for him. They're crying out for condemnation without evidence. These hearings that he has allow him to share the gospel of Jesus. And that brings us to the core reality for this passage. As we're working through this story, and I, I am aware we skipped the last couple of verses of chapter 22. They really go with the next chapter. But as we get to, to this, the heart of this passage, we see this core reality. Following Jesus means standing firm when the price is high. Following Jesus means standing firm when the price is high. Now, Paul gets that. He understands that persecution is awaiting and it's, it's not going to stop him. He knows and yet he goes anyway. He does anyway what he believes in his heart, in his deep conviction to be right, to be the only way of interacting with reality, even though the price is exceedingly high. Now, you and I might have different situations of persecution that we can expect. This same Paul that we see here will later tell young Timothy whom he's left as a pastor at Ephesus by that time, that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus should expect that they're going to be persecuted. In fact, that's our memory verse for today, 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not a maybe. It will happen if you are in Christ and if you look like Christ the world that hates Christ will hate you. We saw that previously. We see that a lot in the book of Acts. It comes up a lot in Paul's letters. We see it in the book of Revelation. In fact, it's even throughout the Old Testament. Those who stand for the Lord are opposed by those who do not. If you read through the Psalms, you see so many things about David praying about his persecutors, his enemies, that the Lord would protect him, that the Lord would avenge him. And the cry of David's heart is stuck in this fact that he stands as the king of God's nation representing the Lord. That's why he often says, I'm blameless before you. I'm righteous before you. He knows he's a sinner. He says that as well but he knows that he's not opposed because of those sins. He's opposed because they oppose the Lord. This theme rings throughout the Scriptures. Following Jesus means standing firm when the price is high. Now there are two extremes that we need to be aware of in our world regarding persecution. We see them pretty regularly. In fact, we each encounter them fairly regularly. For our purposes, let's call them the mansion complex and the martyr complex. The mansion complex and the martyr complex. This, these aren't some official theological terms, but it fits what we're trying to get across, so we're going to ride with that. The mansion complex sort of denies persecution. We see this throughout the, the prominent prosperity teaching that we have today. If you follow Jesus, 
everything's going to be great. Your children will never disobey. Your dog will never have an accident on the floor. The, the world will look upon you with respect, and everybody will know you're a good person. Persecution doesn't factor into that. Then there's the other end. The, the devil loves to keep us on a pendulum. So we swing from this mansion complex that is all about glory. Glory unto glory, victory unto victory, and God will, will take care of you in every step. Now there's truth to that, but there's falsehood mixed in. The martyr complex swings it the other way, where we sort of revel in being the outsiders. Oh, woe is me, like the old hee-haw song. Gloom, despair, agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. And we love being the downtrodden, the outcast. Oh, I'm a Christian and the world hates me. And we wear it as a badge of honor. And we let it go to the extreme where we seek out ways to be opposed to the world around us. Let me tell you, if you're walking with Jesus, if you're reflecting the reality of Christ, you don't have to seek out opposition and persecution. The devil will find you. When we get caught up in seeing every time somebody disagrees with us or comes against us, oh, it's because the world hates Christians. They don't like the way you vote. It's because the world hates Christians. Listen, don't get confused. The cross is not red or blue. It is bloodstained. Our unity with Jesus is not based on any political affiliation. If I choose to live a certain lifestyle, I, I, I choose not to drink, or I choose to drink. Oh, the world hates me because I'm a Christian. Listen, sometimes the world just hates you because you're obnoxious. <laughs> if they hate you because you're a jerk, don't blame Jesus. Stop being a jerk. You know that you are being persecuted for Christ when the life that you live looks like Christ. When you do good and are repaid with evil, then you can recognize, ah, I get it. They hated him first. So they hate not me, but the good of him in me. They hate the spirit of Christ in me. It's easy to hate me. I know me, right? I know my flesh. I know my sinful thoughts, my sinful attitudes. I know that sometimes I can start thinking I'm righteous and my mouth gets a little out of control and I get snarky and sarcastic. If we're posting supposedly Christian things on social media that are making fun of others, even if what we're saying is true, if it's not in a Christ-like attitude, then that opposition from the world is probably not opposition to Christ, but opposition to your manner. We fall into these two extremes, this mansion complex of there, there is no persecution for those who have enough faith. There should be no persecution. God's going to carry me through everything. And we look at Psalm 91 where... where uh, the psalmist is, is looking at the Lord, you're going to protect me, you're going to shelter me under your wings, and no harm can come to me. And we take that in a sense which the psalmist did not intend it. David faced all sorts of hardships. He embraced it. 
what he recognized is that even through this, through the darkest and hardest of times, I am never, ever separated from the one who watches over me. That's why in Psalm 23, he could say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Look at me getting all King James. Listen. Listen. If you're following the Lord, you will go through the valley of the shadow of death. God doesn't keep us from that. He doesn't keep His people from persecution, or Jesus wouldn't have said that we should rest assured that in this world we will have trouble, but we can take heart because He's overcome the world. Now, I spent too much time on that, and I used up all my time for my other points. So let's get to moving. There are so many things that we should see here. And so much of what we're going to look at in this concept, just painting the walls of the New Testament especially, but throughout the Scripture. I'm just going to give you a smattering of it. In fact, the, the Scripture references that are included for you, I was encouraged by some of you just in the last two weeks telling me that you're looking up these verses on your own. I love that. You're intelligent people. You're able to do homework for yourself. This is a good thing. The more we see God's Word, the more we renew our minds with God's Word, the more the Spirit transforms us from within. But as you look at those verses, you have no idea how many I had to cut out of this just to get it to fit on the page. It's just a smattering, a sampling, to give us an idea. All right, some observations and lessons from the text as we go through this. (laughs) Goodness, I'm behind. Anyway, as we go through this, first notice, living for Christ means opposition from the world. Living for Christ means opposition from the world. We will face opposition from the world if we are living for Christ. As we mentioned earlier, 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. James 4 tells us, this is the brother of Christ, half-brother of Christ, not Paul writing this. But he says, you adulterous people, don't you realize? Friendship with the world is enmity toward God. Notice this sub-point. Living for Christ means opposition from the world. Only one kingdom can hold my true allegiance. Only one kingdom can hold my true allegiance. We are here, and if we are in Christ, if you have received the good news of the gospel if you've recognized that you were created for a relationship with God that your sin has severed, and you are holding to Jesus Christ alone as your hope for salvation, as the way to fix that, because you can't fix it with your religion or your good deeds, and you're trusting in His death in your place to pay the wages of sin and His resurrection to give you a new life, then understand that your citizenship has been changed. Your identity has been changed. You are no longer primarily male or female or American or whatever your ethnicity might be or whatever your political leanings might be. That's not who you are. Who you are is a child of God. and You've been transformed transferred from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of the beloved Son. 
You cannot, as an ambassador of that kingdom to this one, let your allegiance primarily align with the kingdom you're in. You must remain allied and devoted to the kingdom you are from, that you are representing. As Christ followers, we have to recognize that living for Christ means opposition from the world. Only one kingdom can hold my true allegiance. That's what we see Paul doing here. He's going along, and, and as he does his thing, notice he's not looking for trouble. That, that would be more of that martyr complex. I'm going to go looking for a fight. I want to look for somebody to oppose me. I'm going to seek it out. Paul doesn't ever seek it out. All he's seeking to do is to testify to Christ. What did we see him saying to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20? Look, I, my, my life, it doesn't matter to me at all. It's worth nothing. My only goal, my only aim is to finish the work that I've been given to run this race, to do the job, to accomplish the mission, mission first, mission focused. And the mission is to testify, to be a witness that Jesus Christ is our hope in a dark world. That's why Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power from on high and you'll be my witnesses even to the ends of the earth. That's the call. Living for Christ means opposition from the world. Also notice this. As Paul saw this in Acts 20, he knew what was coming. As, as we see this theme running through it, how many times did you hear the, the friends of Paul, the believers, the church, seeing under the influence of God's Holy Spirit that trouble awaits in Jerusalem? And how did they react? Paul, don't go. Bad news. If you go to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen. And we see Agabus, the prophet, coming from Judea, and he takes the, the prophetic symbol. I, I love the way Old Testament prophets do this a lot. And Agabus takes Paul's belt, and he binds himself hand and foot, and he says, this, according to what God is telling me, is how the leaders in Jerusalem are going to treat the owner of this belt. And all of the people are like, Paul, 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 don't do it. We love you. Stay with us. Stay safe. Don't put yourself in harm's way. And Paul's response is, really? Why do you want to break my heart like this? You know, I know, I have to go. I have to do what the Father has commissioned me to do. I'm not worried about what's going to happen. I'm ready to, to be bound, to be imprisoned. I'm even willing to die. Why would he think that? Well, he's encountered a reality that trumps it. Notice the point here. When I have counted the cost, I cannot be dissuaded by others quoting the price. When I have counted the cost, I cannot be dissuaded by others quoting the price. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, count the cost. You wouldn't build a, a bridge or a tower or a railroad or a business and get halfway in before you figure out if you have enough money to finish the project. If you do, people think you're an idiot. I'm paraphrasing Jesus, but that's the point. Don't get in without figuring out the expense, the cost, the price. And he goes on to say that the price for following him is high. In fact, he says, if you're not willing to take up your cross, which we might 
not think of the same way because many of you are wearing a cross around your neck right now. We have a cross behind us on the wall here. When they see the cross, when they saw or heard that image, it only was associated with brutal, humiliating death. That, that's a big difference from how we think of the cross. Even in the church, we're so used to it. When Jesus said that to them, it hit them hard. If you're not willing to bear the cross, to deny yourself your own desires, your own flesh, your own comfort, reputation, if you're not willing to deny yourself, then you're not worthy of following me. Count the cost. Listen, if you've budgeted, and you've budgeted well, and and you're seeking to buy a, a new car, and you've looked at it, and you've done the research, or a new house. I'm saying this for my daughter who really wants us to buy a house, build a house out of the farm. And you've done your homework, and you've budgeted, and you know what the cost is. And you've set aside that money. You've made a plan. Then all of your friends saying to you, oh, do you know how much that's going to cost? It can't throw you off. Because you do know what it's going to cost. And you've made the decision that it's worth it. It's planned. When I've counted the cost, I cannot be dissuaded by others quoting the price. Just because it is difficult or dangerous doesn't mean it isn't God's will. I may have a typo there for you. Sorry about that. I apologize, Brad, to set you up that way. Just because it's difficult or dangerous doesn't mean it isn't God's will. It doesn't mean I shouldn't do it. It doesn't mean that it isn't worth it. The price is high. But a cost-benefit analysis of life in Christ, that's what Paul does later on. He says, man, I consider the suffering we're going through now, that's not even worth comparing. I mean... Really, I, I'm in prison. That, that, you know, it is what it is. I'm going probably to, to be killed. Eventually he gets out and then he is reincarcerated. And in the end, Paul is beheaded for his faith. He's good with that. He calls even that beheading a light and momentary trial. It's not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us through Christ. When I've counted the cost, I cannot be dissuaded by others quoting the price. Just because it's difficult or dangerous doesn't mean it isn't God's will. Third, Christ-like love removes unnecessary obstacles to faith. Now, these next two points will be closely related. Christ-like love removes unnecessary obstacles to faith. Notice, when he gets to Jerusalem... <clears throat> Verse 20, the brothers there at Jerusalem say to him, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live, or live according to our customs. Just a little uh, fill in backstory here. If you've been with us, you will remember this. If you haven't, perhaps you're not aware. Paul, among the Gentiles utterly rejects the idea that to follow Christ means you have to become a Jew. In the Old Covenant, that's how it was done. You had to renounce your old ways and convert to Judaism. 
He's saying you're still renouncing your old ways. You're still renouncing living life for yourself, but you're not finding justification in the law. You're finding justification in the substitutionary death of Christ, paying your penalty. God's grace poured out on you, not your righteousness. And he makes a, a really big deal about that in his letters especially. Nobody is justified by keeping the law. We're justified by grace. We take hold of that grace through faith, through trusting in it. But even the faith comes from God, and so there's no place for us to boast. There's no works involved. You're not saved through the act of baptism. You're saved through the faith that leads you to be baptized. You're not saved or made holy as you take the elements of communion. No, because you are saved and you recognize what those elements mean, you celebrate and remember. That is a big deal. So Paul is, is now in a place, he gets to Jerusalem, and, and the Jews who are there who have received Christ, notice they say, notice how many Jews have believed and yet are zealous for the law. In their faith in Christ, it has moved them to live for God. And according to the customs that they had learned their whole lives, that Old Testament law, the, the morality and righteousness and justice that God required, is pictured in the law. So they're passionate about it. And when they hear the message that Paul is saying, no, forget about the law, to the Gentiles, that's a major obstacle for them to receive Paul and therefore to receive Paul's teaching. So the leaders at Jerusalem who are not endorsing legalism are saying to Paul, hey, they're going to know that you're here and we want to show love to our neighbor." by removing unnecessary obstacles. So they encourage him to uh, engage in this uh, Jewish vow. We don't need to go into that. In all, likely it's a, in all likeliness, it is a, uh, a Nazarite vow, which Paul took previously. And to fund their sacrifices, to actually pay this on their behalf so that they could go and have their heads ritually shaved in keeping with that vow. And in doing so, the message would be sent to the Jewish believers who might have a real hard time, a stumbling block, if you will, getting past this message of the law doesn't matter. So by showing them, I love the law of the Lord. And I live myself as, as much as I can. I devote myself to being righteous before God. He's removing obstacles to their faith. That's a pretty big deal. But understand this, a clear path does not ensure the choice to travel it. A clear path does not ensure the choice to travel it. John the Baptist had come to make straight the way of the Lord, to clear the path, to remove obstacles from the people of Israel so that they could receive the Messiah. And yet we know how that ended cleared the path, but the people did not choose to travel it. You and I can work really hard to remove obstacles to faith from our loved ones, from the people around us, from those who might come to church to check it out. We want you to hear the gospel. We want you to know the truth of what real life actually is. Not 
a building or a sign or a gathering of people, but real life in Christ. So we got to remove obstacles, and a lot of the time, I'm the obstacle. You're the obstacle. we got to get out of the way so people can see a true reflection of who Jesus is. There's a reason that you will never find a political sign in my yard. If you know me, you know I've got very strong political opinions. No matter what I might say from the pulpit, I feel very strongly and passionately about certain things. And I'm happy to engage in discussion with you. Because in a discussion, we can actually have rational thought, conversation. And you can understand where I'm coming from, and I can understand where you're coming from. But a sign in my yard, whatever that sign might say, is going to cause someone to jump to a conclusion about the person that put that sign out there. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't. You make your own decisions for you. But for me and my house, it became more important, particularly as we were starting the church back in 2003, that people are not blocked from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ because of a, a political vote. Even local candidates. I've had friends running for office who will come and say, hey, can you put a sign in my yard? I'd love to, but I can't. I'll support you. You got my vote. I'll support you in conversation. But I can't put a sign out. It's an unnecessary obstacle. There's a reason that this is a community church and not a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or a Baptist or a Methodist church. Because so many people, including many of you here, would see that label of a denomination and jump to conclusions that may or may not actually be accurate. We want you to know Jesus. We want to remove unnecessary obstacles to the faith. But even in doing so, you can make the best presentation of the gospel ever. You can remove every obstacle of your own hypocrisy and live a life that so perfectly reflects Jesus. I'll even go so far hypothetically to say perfectly reflects Jesus. It doesn't, so don't get carried away. But hypothetically, I can perfectly reflect the character and nature of Jesus Christ in my life. And the people around me still choose not to receive that gospel. How do I know that? Because that's what they did with Jesus. Nobody reflects Jesus better than Jesus. Nobody presents the truth better than the way, the truth, and the life. And yet he was rejected. Isaiah 53 details the rejection of the Messiah 700 years before Jesus was born. Because that's how it works. I have to press on. Christ-like love removes unnecessary obstacles to faith, and yet a clear path does not ensure the choice to travel it. Along with that, we see in that same passage that Christ-like love seeks peace when possible. It seeks peace when possible. Romans 12, 18, says, the same guy is writing, as much as it depends on you, to, to the greatest extent possible, live at peace with everybody. But, <laughs> it doesn't always depend on you. That's what happens here. Out of love for neighbor, Paul listens to the advice of these uh, Jewish elders, the elders in Jerusalem. And as they tell him, look, Paul, we want to remove these obstacles, but we also want to make peace. We want to avoid 
unnecessary conflict. Now, if you think for one second that Paul goes along with this because he just doesn't want to you know, face any difficulty, then you've not been reading along. Paul is totally cool with whatever suffering he might face. But what he's not okay with is unnecessary conflict. Truth divides, but love seeks to unite. Truth will divide, but that doesn't mean that our personalities and our actions should be divisive. Christ-like love seeks peace when possible, but notice this, sometimes conflict and persecution come, and there is nothing we can do to avoid it. Sometimes conflict and persecution come, and there's nothing we can do to avoid it. As Paul is laying this out, and he makes his defense before the, the Jewish crowd, the rioters, this mob that is calling for his condemnation, without evidence, without even really clear accusations, they're saying some things that are not false. Notice that as they try to, to tell the Romans what's going on, some are shouting one thing, some are shouting another. It's pandemonium. But when Paul begins to speak to them in their mother tongue, most of these folks don't know who he is, other than what these Ephesian Jews are telling them. He had run into some trouble in Ephesus, in, in the province of Asia. And as he was dealing with some of these issues there, word gets back as these guys come back to Jerusalem for the same reason he is, they're coming back for the festival, and as they get there, they're inciting everybody. This guy, this guy, he's trouble. Help us, we got to shut this down. He's not looking for conflict. And when he speaks to them in Aramaic, they're struck. Whoa, wait a minute. He's one of us. And they listen, and they're quiet through his whole speech as he explains to them his background and what has happened to him. To, to him. And when he gets to the end, and he says, Therefore, the Lord said to me, Get out of Jerusalem. They're not going to accept your message. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Bam! The hammer falls. Oh, no. We're not going to put up with this. We were good up until this point. Sometimes you can do everything right and you still end up in a fight. Sometimes you can do everything right. You can be the most loving, authentic, genuine person in the world. And that opposition is still going to come. And false accusations can be made. Sometimes conflict and persecution come and there's nothing we can do to avoid it. And yet, a truth that we see in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and we live today, even amid persecution, God watches over His children. Even amid persecution, God watches over His children. That's the point of Psalm 91. That's the point of what I read earlier for you in Psalm 31. God watches over us even when we go through it. Even when David in Psalm 23 goes through the valley of the shadow of death, he knows, i got to go through this valley, but I'm not going alone. The Lord said through Isaiah in chapter 43 of His prophecy, I'll be with you in the fire. 
I'll be with you in the flood. But notice, he never says there won't be fire and flood. Just I'll be with you. God watches over his children. That's not true for everyone. It's not true for everyone. My kids have lots of sports shirts because we've been a sports family for a long time. And so there are lots of shirts that say Zyger on the back. Some of you have those kind of jerseys from your kids' ball teams, even in T-ball. You spend money, you get a name on the back of a jersey. T-ball's not really a sport. That, that, that's another thing. <laughs> Anyhow, anybody could be wearing my kid's shirt. We don't put those in the Goodwill bag, by the way, because I don't want anybody walking around with Zyger on their back. It represents something. Not everybody who wears the shirt or claims the name is actually part of the team or in the family. God watches over His children. Make sure you're not just wearing the jersey. Make sure you're on the team. Even amid persecution, God watches over His children. Notice this. Even those who don't belong to God still belong to God. Well, that's a weird thing to say, Zyger. You better back that up. Hear it again. Even those who don't belong to God still belong to God. Notice what happens here. Paul is saved from the mob. If you believe that's God's hand, say amen. God is involved here in saving Paul from the mob. But who does the saving? The pagan Roman soldiers. We see this theme come up again and again. God uses unbelievers to do the work that He requires. Even these Romans who don't belong to God, they don't believe in Him, they're not part of the family, they still belong to Him. The Lord turns the king's heart like a river. God does that today. We have ungodly officials ruling over us in our secular government. That's reality. You think for a second God doesn't have control of what's going on? Not for one second. Our sovereign God is never out of control. And He watches over His children even by using those who might otherwise hate His children. Sometimes even in the midst of their hate. These same Romans who crucified Jesus now save Paul. Even in the crucifixion of Jesus, when the devil thought he won, that's what purchased our salvation. God was never out of control. Even those who don't belong to him still belong to him. Lastly, notice this. Persecution provides a powerful platform. I had to throw some alliteration in for those of you who enjoy that. So we'll see that here. Persecution provides... A powerful platform. Notice what the Lord says to him. Oh, well, I guess it comes up later. I got carried away. It's in another chapter. But, but as, we, as we move forward, we see in chapter 23, in verse 11, as Paul has, has been persecuted, he's been arrested, he's been beaten, here's what the Lord says to Paul. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, 
so you must also testify in Rome. Now Paul has been itching to testify in Rome. That's what he wants to do. He's been planning to be able to make a trip to Rome. The trip's not going to go quite the way he had in mind. But God's going to get him to Rome. And he's going to get him to testify. Jesus told his believers in Matthew, in Luke, they're going to take hold of you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to bring you before councils and kings. Don't worry about it. This is your chance to testify. When you stand before those rulers, don't put it out of your mind trying to prepare yourself for what to say. I'll speak through you. I'll give you the words when it's time. You just follow me. And every bit of the persecution that comes into your life for the sake of the gospel is my providing a platform for you to preach and proclaim the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Persecution provides a powerful platform, but it's not just about the preaching. Paul is here, he's doing this as God has ordained it in the persecution to be able to tell the truth about Jesus Christ, to be able to offer life in the gospel. But there's more. It causes him to grow. Paul is steadier, stabler, more mature now than he was at the beginning when he was saved in chapter 9. It took years. We are years removed from that. Even decades. And Paul, having been through the battle, having wrestled and fought and been persecuted and been in, in debate after debate and having struggled and even failed, he's become stronger. There is a maturity that we get when we go through the fire. Notice this, growth is gained in grappling. Not only does persecution provide a powerful platform, but for those of us, it's not just for those out there, it's also for the internal work that God is doing in me. Growth is gained in grappling. Now, as a, as a football coach, in, in whatever sport we're coaching, we went through this when I was coaching track even, and it's not nearly the same thing. We can train and train and train. We can condition. We can do drills. We can get all of the things right. But there is nothing that replaces game speed. If you watch the NFL, you probably noticed some of that. They didn't have a preseason this year. So the first couple of weeks might have been a little sloppier than some. It might have been a little more injury than some years because they weren't battle-tested. There's a growth that comes through the doing of it. So a good football coach is going to look for opportunities to create competition, to create scrimmages. Yes, protected. But the more you actually play the game, the better you understand the game. Your heart changes. Your feeling changes. I can be fully prepared and fully trained, but until I'm actually engaged in battle, I don't get it the same way. Everybody who gets through basic training in the military is technically ready for battle. How many of you recognize they're not ready for battle? Some of you here know because you've been there. And you know that you got trained in your training. 
but you weren't ready until it hit you. Not only is growth gained in grappling, but notice this, those who are most battle-ready are those who are most battle-tested. Those who are most battle-ready are those who are most battle-tested. Every one of these kids that just walked in from our kids' church, they're learning the Bible. They're learning to memorize scriptures. They're learning to understand the gospel. But until they grow up and face the hardships of life, they can't fully be ready to face the hardships of life. You train, you prepare, you create as much advantage as you can. But eventually, to go back to football, you've got to kick it off. And all the exciting, enthusiastic pregame speeches in the world don't mean a darn once that ball gets kicked and the play gets live and difficulty comes. Every Sunday when you come to church, you hear a sermon, and I, I try to make it inspirational when that's appropriate. I try to, to, to make it interesting. Sometimes that's easier than others. And some of you get fired up on Sunday. But then you've got to leave the building and go out into the real world. And some of you go home to a family that's hostile to the gospel. And it drags you down. Some of you go to a workplace that is hostile to the gospel and it drags you down. Understand that you become more ready for what comes next in the battle you're going through right now. Persecution provides a powerful platform. Growth is gained in grappling. Those who are most battle-ready are those who are most battle-tested. Let's wrap this up. 2 Timothy 3.12 In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everybody say will. will. Not might. Will be persecuted. The Bible has a pervasive emphasis on enduring, persevering, overcoming. Don't misunderstand. This does not mean we get it all right or we come through without scars or regrets or failures. What does it mean to endure, to persevere, to overcome? It means you keep going. Yeah, you failed. Get up and keep going. You got knocked down. Get up. Keep going. You face persecution and hardship. Get up and keep going. Your spouse didn't like your, your born-again conversion as you became a Christ follower and they left you. Get up and keep going. You lost your job because of your Christian ethics and your boss wasn't cool with that. Get up and keep going. We simply keep going. We don't quit. We don't turn back. We recognize that Christ is reality. Christ is life. And no matter how we feel, no matter what we face, or who comes against us, or how they come against us, it doesn't matter. The reality of Christ never changes. Therefore, we have no other hope. We have nowhere else to go 
It's only Jesus. Christ alone. So stand. Stand. Stand firm. As you face these difficult valleys, even the valley of the shadow of death, choose to lift Jesus high and bless His name. I'm I'm not trying to confuse you. If you believe this is true, stand. By all means, stand up for Jesus. And yes, metaphorically speaking, stand firm as you face persecution. But by all means, understand that you will face times when your heart is heavy. Choose to sing for joy, knowing that the same God who never fails and is never late will not fail you now in this moment and is working all things out for your good and His glory even when you can't understand it. Knowing the reality of Christ, stand firm when the price is highest. Embrace the sure and certain opposition of the world as more than worthwhile trade for the sure and certain hope of resurrection in Jesus Christ, who promises the crown of life to all who endure. Heavenly Father, as we close today, as we sing this closing song of declaration I pray that you would move in us. Father, I recognize that anytime we're together with this many people, whether in person or, or watching online, that there are those among us who are hearing this or encountering this, engaging their heart with it for the first time. And Father, I pray that your spirit would make clear to them that the way to you has been made clear by your Son. Help each one to choose to travel that path. To let go of this life and take hold of your true, real life. Help us to endure. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.